the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. Run your law firm the right way. This is the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. Welcome, everyone, to a special pop-up podcast, the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Jim's not on the call today. It's just me, but I've got a really special one. This is really interesting. I've got Jay Ruane, I've got Dan Lage, and Marquise Jackson on the call. And this is a really, really good one. I hope you listen to the entire thing because they're a really good story, a tragic story that turned into a good story. So, Jay, uh, we want to introduce yourself and who you got on the call with us. So my name is Jay Ruane. I'm a, one of the owners and partners of Ruane Attorneys in Connecticut. And with me uh, on the call today is our firm's client, Mr. Marquise Jackson, as well as uh, his primary attorney on his file, uh, attorney Dan Lage. Let me set this up a little bit so you can understand uh, a little bit about the context of where we're at. For a number of years, uh, our firm has been involved in post-conviction litigation in Connecticut. In fact, my father, who's a partner of the firm, handled two of the seminal cases that deal with post-conviction matters in the state of Connecticut. Connecticut is, un- is unique among states in that we have a constitutional requirement uh, to provide counsel to indigent defendants uh, that are incarcerated, even through the habeas corpus uh, proceedings. Then about a decade ago, the state of Connecticut Public Defender Services were in a bit of a crisis mode in that they were overwhelmed with the number of habeas corpus petitions that were being filed. I approached the Office of the uh, Public Defender uh, because of our our passion for criminal defense and our believing in uh, the justice system and that everybody who is uh, locked up deserves to have uh, quality representation advocating for them and approached them and said, you know what, we're a a law firm in Connecticut, but we do have some time. We'll be able to take on some of these cases at at a substantially reduced rate. Give us some files and we'll work them up and we'll do what we can. Luckily for us, uh, through the course of this process, we've been able to work with some fantastic clients and get relief. One of the things that we were able to do was assign the case of Mr. Jackson to Attorney Dan Lage, who's going to take over now and explain a little bit about uh, the Marquise Jackson case and how that came to be. Dan, take it away. Hi, Tyson, and thank you so much for having us on your podcast today. As Jay was uh, alluding to, Marquise Jackson is one of those post-conviction clients that truly makes the work we do important and worthwhile. And and in his case, what we found is through a joint investigation with the federal defender who was representing his co-defendant, some interesting information that, that surfaced that proved that the two individuals who were convicted back in the year 2000 and had served almost two decades wrongfully for a murder that they did not commit, were in fact innocent. And we'll discuss more about what that information revealed, but those efforts have now proven successful. Mr. Jackson is now a free man, and I think the tireless efforts of lawyers who refuse to give up in the face of adversity and and who forge forward despite some some very, very uh, difficult barriers placed in front of them Uh, prove that this work is truly important, and and I'm I'm so glad to be here to discuss the case. Dan, so talk about what the allegations were and how Marquise got tangled into this thing. We're at the early morning hours of January 24th, 1999, and Marquise and his friends 
were in the New Haven, Connecticut area, a very popular city, the home of Yale University here in the Northeast. And it was the early morning hours, and they were out having a good time, as teenagers are apt to do, hanging out at a nightclub. Well, at some point during that time, there was a robbery. The robbery occurred in the New Haven city. And in the uh, events of that robbery, what happens is shots were fired. The three men with ski masks rush into this corner store, this deli store, and they demand money. They start firing recklessly, and, and one of those bullets hit the store owner, who was the uh, acting as a clerk as well, and he hits the floor. Unfortunately, another bullet hit a customer that was standing at the counter. And, you know, what we have here is we have a young man who, you know, senselessly dies as a result of, of this crime. And in the back room, there was another employee who was assaulted by one of the suspects. He was pistol whipped. He also was robbed. And in the course of that robbery, what was taken from him was a cell phone. Now, that cell phone proves very important to the result of this case. What happens is the New Haven Police Department begins their investigation. Okay, and Their investigation finds that a young man at the scene of the crime after the investigation had already started, if you can imagine, the yellow tape is up, the cops are interviewing witnesses, a young man named Vernon Horn is present. And Vernon Horn actually provides a statement. This is probably about a half hour or so after the shooting takes place. And Vernon Horn at that time is accompanied by a young woman, and he tells the police, you know, we heard all this commotion, we come outside, and we see that, that something had happened, so we were interested, and we came by to see what was going on. Vernon Horn was the subject of great interest of the New Haven Police Department. And after a while, one of the lead detectives finds out that Vernon Horn was at the scene. He begins to try to piece together a narrative that implicates Horn, as we've discovered later. Well, getting wrapped up in that narrative, unfortunately, is Marquise Jackson, one of Vernon Horn's close friends back in 1999. And in fact, Marquise and Vernon were hanging out together, as I, as I said when I first started talking about the case. Well, the cell phone that I talked about earlier, they run the, the records of the phone. They, they come back, it comes back from a company called Omnipoint that five phone calls had been made since the robbery had been committed. One of the phone calls calls out to a residence in West Haven of a young lady who is visited by the lead detective. The young lady then says to the detective, you know, this fourth phone call here, it's a phone call that's made at 11.07 a.m., that could have been to me. I, I, I feel like I recognize that number. The cops show her a bunch of photographs. One of the photographs is to a gentleman named Marcus Pearson. Marcus Pearson is someone that she recognizes. Now, she never tells the investigating detective that that number is Marcus's number or that Marcus would have called her at 1107. She simply says, yeah, I recognize him, and that could have been the call. Well, they go interview Marcus. And Marcus says, yeah, that could have been me. I don't know. I don't remember the call, though. Well, six visits later, he remembers the call. And the question is, why does he? Mr. Pearson was on probation. He was the single father taking care of two young uh, babies. Their mother was incarcerated. Our theory is that he was probably threatened by being a suspect in the murder or by having his probation revoked and, and becoming incarcerated again. Nonetheless, and he admits this later, years later, he recants his original uh, testimony. He testifies at trial that Vernon Horn had approached him at his, his front porch. Horn had a cell phone, and, and Horn said, you can use his cell phone if you need it. He says, yeah, I'm going to make a call. He calls the West Haven residence, and, and he then, in 2011, recants the whole story, says it never happened. No one believes him. We fast forward to 2013, I believe, in a separate proceeding. He recants again. No one believes him. We then discover, as recently as, as a couple short months ago, that we can prove where the call was made. We can pretty much demonstrate who made the call. And I think that, you know, to wrap up this portion of the conversation, the investigation has revealed that where the call was made was not where Marquise and Vernon were, and who made the call could not have been uh, Vernon, Marquise, or Marcus Pearson. So how did you discover this? I mean, how, is it, how did this come up? I mean, it sounds like this was an issue at trial. So how did you all, I guess, get more evidence to show that it wasn't Marquise? Here's what's great about post-conviction relief, Tyson. New lawyers get to put new eyeballs on an old case. And when you get that, you get a new sense of zeal and passion 
for something that others have forgotten long ago. And so what we did was we discovered in the original clerk's office in the town of New Haven, in Vernon Horn's file, there was a search warrant that was filed by the lead detective in this case. His name is Leroy Deese, in conjunction with another detective named Patricia Adger. Deese and Adger filed this search warrant to get records from several phone numbers, okay? Now, those phone numbers were not the stolen cell phone that I discussed earlier. What they were included Marquise Jackson's phone, that West Haven residence that I told you about before, Marcus Pearson's cell phone, cell phones that belong to other individuals that we now consider the true perpetrators in this case. Those records were never revealed at trial because the warrant wasn't revealed at trial. What we found last year in the clerk's office was a returned warrant. So for those who aren't familiar with the process, typically a prosecutor, a law enforcement agent requests a warrant, the prosecutor signs off on it, the judge has to then sign off on it, and then they go seize the contents of what the warrant's looking for. Well, we knew if we're back in 1999 that the warrant was requested. However, in 1999, no one, that's all the defense lawyers involved, the prosecutor, we think, no one knew that the warrant had been returned. Okay? In other words, the judge signed off on it, and they went and got all those records. For some reason, in September of 2014, the, warrant, the returned version of the warrant shows up, but not in Jackson's file, in Horn's file. So you see a stamp on the warrant that says filed 2014. Now that's strange because the trial ended 11 years or, or 13 years before. Appeals had been filed, post-conviction cases had concluded, but this warrant had been returned in 2014. So that sparked an interest. Lawyers were now looking at this saying, these are out there somewhere, or they've been destroyed, but they were definitely in existence at one point, and New Haven PD knew about it. And so the efforts of the federal defender in this regard, they had a guy on the inside. One of their investigators knew the detectives involved in this case, one of the detectives, Patricia Adger, specifically. Both of the detectives have been retired. Adger gets a visit from the investigator, and Adger says to the investigator, you know, I do remember that Marquise Jackson case. I do remember the Vernon Horn case. In fact, I may have some, some stuff in my basement. I'll go take a look. She returns and says, yeah, Detective Deese gave me these things after he retired. I just kept them in my basement all this time. Never provided a reason why, as to why she kept them, or as to why Deese turned them over to her and not to the evidence locker in the New Haven Police Department, or to the prosecutor in this case, or to the defense counsel. No one knew about this stuff. And interestingly enough, Tyson, what we know about Mr. Deese is that he's currently employed by the state's attorney's office in New Haven as one of their investigators, interestingly enough. And so revealed within those records is proof that there is absolutely no connection between Marquise Jackson and the true assailants in this case, the true murderers in this case, who all hail from Bridgeport, Connecticut. In fact, there was a third co-defendant, Stephen Brown, who was originally someone who pled guilty and then testified at trial. We now know that all his testimony, which helped convict Marquise and Vernon, was a complete lie, complete fabrication, further proven by these records. He was from Bridgeport and friends with the uh, suspects that we believe truly committed this horrible act. And uh, beyond that, we, in conjunction with efforts from an agent working with the FBI, have now gone back, recreated the pathway of the, you know, the travel of the person making the calls from the stolen cell phone. The star witness in this case for the prosecution, Stephen Brown, says that he makes certain calls, certain points on the Interstate 95 highway here in Connecticut. Um, in fact, that's not true because we now know uh, after T-Mobile provided us with the true locations of cell towers that were on the original call log of that stolen cell phone, we've been able to uncode what those call towers were, what those cell towers were. They were not anywhere near where Stephen Brown said they were. And then most importantly, that phone call that Marcus Pearson said was made from his front porch in New Haven, Connecticut, that call was actually made right outside of Stephen Brown's residence all the way down in Bridgeport, Connecticut. All that evidence combined with, with what we always have known has been a very, very shaky conviction from the beginning uh, resulted in the release of these two innocent gentlemen.
All right, I'm going to start by saying Dan Jay, fantastic job. You, I mean, this is—it sounds like I can tell you, you gave me the synopsis. You all have done an amazing job, and kudos to you. Great job to you. I do want to get to the, the star of this show, though, Marquise. Marquise, first, thanks for coming on the call. But not even when you're arrested, but after you're convicted and you go into prison and they lock those doors behind you, what, what do you? What's going through your mind? Uh, it's surreal. I'm thinking they made a mistake. It'll get fixed. Maybe in a year, maybe in a couple years. My next lawyer, my appeal, I'm definitely going to succeed in that. There's there's no way they they could prove that I really committed this crime. I have several evidence, several witnesses putting me at a different location at the time of the crime. In fact, I had an alibi that they spoke to, that the detective spoke to while they were investigating me. While I was in the the, uh, detective's borough, uh, being questioned by uh, Detective Patricia Adgers, unbeknownst to me, he asked me where was I at. She asked me where was I at this time. I tell her that I was with a female companion. They leave the in- in- investigation room and go speak to her. While I'm in the, the police station, and she confirms that we were together. So I'm like, all this stuff going on, there's no way. I was naive in, American, in, in America's criminal justice system, believing that the wrong person never gets convicted. In fact, if you could tell my story to me back then, I would say Marquis Jackson has something to do with something. The government is not going to lock up an innocent man. So while in prison, just thinking about all the things that I've been taught in school, about, you know, innocent goes guilty. It's better that 10 innocent, no, 10 guilty get convicted or innocent than one innocent person suffer. So I'm believing this thing. And I'm believing in the ideal of the criminal justice system, but I am at this time saddled with a conviction for murder, serving a 45-year sentence for a crime that I didn't commit. So at no point at that time did I believe I was really going to have to serve this time. Well, unbeknownst to me, I served 19 years of that crime, of that time. So it's interesting. I mean, it sounds like at first, at least, you you were hopeful, right? Am I I getting that right? I was hopeful. I was like, oh, they made a mistake. Not really understanding the criminal justice system in the process. Uh, somebody's going to come by. Oh, Mr. Jackson, you're going home tomorrow. We made a mistake. Things came out. Information was found. You were going home. And I would have been like, yes, I told you guys back then. All right. Just waiting for the call. That never came. So did at some point, did you lose hope? Unfortunately, I did lose hope in the criminal justice system. And the mo- and what hurts, what hit me the hardest is that in 2014, uh, Vernon Horn's conviction was overturned due to his habeas. It was overturned. So now I was hopeful. I said, okay, now it's finally coming out. Granted, this is 15 years later, but the truth is coming out. I should be released anytime soon. But that didn't happen. In fact, the Connecticut Supreme Court overturned Vernon Horn's over, uh, habeas overturn. So now he's back in prison. This is when I thought, all right, the state of Connecticut is really sticking it to us. It's possible that I might have to serve 45 years of my life for a crime I didn't commit while in prison. I have to serve this. And that's when all my hope was starting to really flee. And this is when, you know, Dan and the the Roe Wayne firm really told me to keep my head up that it's not over. But once again, I'm looking at them as part of the same system that got me convicted and serving all this time. So I, I, I can't trust anyone. They're telling me to keep, we're going to keep fighting, keep fighting. But I'm thinking, man, you're part of the system. You're part of these people. What are you going to fight for me? You don't even know me. But boy, was I wrong on that. Whenever you talk to the friends and family, did they believe you or did they think that you were a murderer? Well, they've been told this for years. So... <clears throat> why Why wouldn't you believe that? You're being told by the authority. The authorities are telling you that this individual committed this crime. The, a jury system duly convicted this guy of doing this crime. They heard all the evidence, and they came to the conclusion that he participated in the robbery where someone was killed. So you're getting all this from other, every other authority, and you got one guy saying that he didn't do it. Well, I, ran in, I never ran into a, again, a guilty person in prison also. So I'm like, oh, now I'm being lumped in with everything else. So when when authority tells you something, you normally believe it. 
So people started to believe it. So I, I basically lived my whole my whole incarceration as a guilty murderer, robber. Absolutely so believed it. Were your parents alive, and are they still alive whenever you went into prison? Unfortunately, my father passed away in 2005. My mother is still here, and but she's in alien health. You know, all that time that I was taken away from my family, you know, that that's probably the worst part. And I say that because if my family really didn't love me, it would have been easier for me to do my bid, for me to serve my time. But due to the fact that it's, I really believe that it's true, that when an individual goes to prison, his whole family goes to prison, and all those that loved him. So within that context, a lot of things happen that that I really, you know, you really can't see. It's like the cost of prison is upon the whole family. So, you know, my father passed away, and they allowed me to uh, see him in, in, on his deathbed at uh, the VA hospital because he was a veteran in the Air Force. So they allowed me to see him at, at, while in chains with two COs on my one on my right arm, one on my left arm, in the room, in the hospital room, while I'm speaking to my father for a half hour. We had a nice discussion and, you know, things like that. You know, I encouraged him saying that he's going to make it out, but he didn't make it out of the hospital. A couple of days later, he passed away as far as my father. And while in prison, they asked me that I want to go to the funeral. I declined that. I rather I didn't want to see him in his casket. I seen him. We had a conversation. So that's the last visual that I had of my father in the half hospital bed with encouragement. And one of the things that he always told me that I, I, I follow today, he said, son, no matter what happens in life, always keep your personality. You know, because I, when, I, when, when he seen me, I was really stern and upset with the world, with everybody. Nobody couldn't tell me nothing. I had this, this, this hateful life. But he's seen that. And on his deathbed, he said, no matter what, because I always was a cheerful kid. And, I, you know, I wanted to be a comedian at once. I was funny. And he seen that all that was leaving me. He said, no matter whatever happens, keep your personality. And that's what I'm doing now. And that's, that's why I'm trying to live my life to the fullest. But at times, it, very, it was very hard, you know, being incarcerated for a crime I didn't commit. But, you know, I'm living it the best I can with what I have now. He gave you incredible advice. Now, yeah. luckily, your your mom's been able to see you exonerated. Um, yes. The, the last time your dad saw you, you, you were in shackles. Did, did he believe that you committed the murder at the time you died? He said he didn't. He said he didn't believe that I committed it. You know, because, you know, there's a, we have we have this this thing where, all right, you could tell me anything. Did you do this? And we had a heart to heart. We had an eye to eye. And when I told him I didn't do it, he shed a tear. Because I believe that he did believe that I did it because of the, the you know, the, the people that I was hanging around at the time. You never know what your kids are doing at, you know, at certain times. So I guess he thought maybe it was possible. But when I told him I really didn't do it, and I see the tear come to his eye, I believe that was the time when he really was convinced that I didn't do it. So I I, I want to leave with the thought that that moment when I seen that tear, he believed that I didn't do it. Unfortunately, he, never, he, he wasn't around for me to see me be exonerated. But I do believe he's up there. He's looking down. He sees what's going on here. And, you know, for that face that he put in me and his son, he knows that, you know, unfortunately I was a victim of a system that, you know, incarcerates first and then fixes later. So my next question is for Dan, and then the, after after Dan's done, I want Jay to answer it. But, Dan, when you first go and you meet Marquise, what, what's your impression of him? Probably the same impression that you have listening to him during this podcast. He's a wonderful personality, a tremendous uh, young man. I, I mean, he's when I first met him, I could tell that everything he's saying today rung as true then as, as it does now, which is you see a bright spirit, but you see someone who's certainly uh, frustrated and suspicious about the prospects of his, of his fight, but a fight that he, he carries with him nonetheless. And, you know, he, he told me he proclaimed his innocence from day one, from the first day that I met him. And, uh, you know, you, you take that. And you do what you can with the case, with the facts, the law, and the the effort that you have with you. And, and sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you don't get any breaks at all. I think in this case, uh, not only was luck on our side, but I, I think the uh, tireless effort of the lawyers and, and Marquise's uh, you know, willingness to, to see the process through 
resulted in a wonderful outcome. I mean, he's, he's a great young man who I think um, deserved so much better from a system that, that asks a lot of its citizens and, and often lets them down. Jay, how about you? What was your impression? So I got to give you some context before I answer the question. You know, I've been I've been handling criminal defense now for about 20 years. I started off as a public defender. I thought that was going to be my career. Left the public defender's office to open my own shop and sort of saved into handling mainly DUI criminal defense type cases. And I will tell you that started about a year ago. I started to have sort of a, a, a crisis of faith in what I do for a living. I was getting to the point where I I just I didn't feel like I could continue on for another 20, 25 years handling these cases. I was tired of getting beat down with clients who didn't appreciate the hard work and with a court system that didn't appreciate the role of the criminal defense lawyer to be a check on, on, on the overarching uh, actions by the state. I was tired of being looked down upon and, and, and essentially not winning much. And it even got to the point where I had conversations with uh, my wife, who uh, works here at the firm, and, and with my father, who's my partner, back at the beginning part of this year. And I said, you know, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I, I really need to take a step back and take a step away because I just don't, I don't think I have it in me. And then the facts surrounding Marquise's case came in, and I will tell you that if it were not for Marquise, I may, be looking, I may have been looking to get out of this business entirely. Um, but getting to be involved in this case, uh, getting to know Marquise over the last month, as we got to spend some time, you know, now that he's out of jail and be at things together and getting to know his family when we all went out to lunch after uh, he was released and uh, getting to know his sisters and, and, and his aunts and, and, and his mom, it sort of renewed in me an understanding of, of how important it is for the role of, of someone like me. And, and it's really sort of given me a, a new life. So, you know, if it wasn't for Marquise, I probably would not have continued down this path of doing what we do. And I can only thank him for that. And I know if you probably talk to Dan, he will say, you know, that there was a change. There, there's been a, a, you know, a spring and Jay step over the last couple of months. And I, I got a little fired up, and I can remember sitting in chambers with the judge when they're saying, well, you know, we'll try to get Marquise out sometime next week. And I looked at them and said, that's not good enough. Give me any judge anywhere in the state. We'll go there. Can we do this tomorrow? How quickly can we get this out? Because I found, I found a cause that I could get behind again, and uh, it sort of reinvigorated me. Uh, and I have nobody to thank, thank for that uh, other than Marquise Jackson. I love that message, too, and I think uh, it's a good message for a lot of the attorneys on this podcast and, and a lot of just people, because I'm going to share this with everyone I can find, uh, just people in general, you know, finding your passion. I think that's a, a very important message. I, I, I guess my question, is, this one's probably for Dan. Dan, did you, when you first took this case, uh, and Jay, you can answer this, too, did you all actually think you were going to win? And uh, a follow-up to that is, is, did you ever lose hope? Did you ever lose hope that you were going to win? I don't lose hope, Tyson. I'm the type of person who has nothing if I don't have uh, optimism. I am not your typical lawyer. I was a 15-year-old homeless kid who never went to high school, who got his GED, who had a son when I was 18 years old, who was involved in, in many of the same things that could have trapped me in a position like where Marquise was for 19 years. You can't afford to be down in the dumps, to dwell, to be negative, to be pessimistic, in that sort of uh, situation. So when I first met Marquise, you know, he, he sort of made me think about everything that I fought for to get to where I am. When I meet every client, that's the feeling that I get. I'm sure that you have the same feeling. My hope is that lawyers around the country have that feeling too when they first take a case on. I think all of us, when we go to law school, we have a, a mission in our heart to do good by the people that can't help themselves in whatever uh, uh, situation under the principles of law that that may be. And for me, coming out of law school, I tried to retain what, what inspired me to attend law school in the first place, which was I grew up in the hood. I grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where you know chances don't come easy. And uh, you know it, it was a hard fight for myself, for my friends who all had the system working against us. And I wanted to be able to help those kinds of people. When I first met Jay, and I sat and I, I had an interview with him and his father, the two partners of this firm, and they told me 
what we do is we help people who have been accused of crimes because they often do not have anyone to stand up for them. And I knew that I couldn't work anywhere else. And so for me, that was the driving principle behind every single case that I take on, not just Marquise's. I love it. Great. I, lo- I love your passion. Jay, it sounds like you, you've got your, your passion back, but at some point, did you ever lose hope with this case? Unfortunately, I will gladly say yes, um, because, you know, we came to the point where this is not the first exoneration case that uh, my firm has been involved in a number of years ago, also in New Haven, also involving the same state's attorney's office. We were involved with a situation where four young men uh, were exonerated for uh, for a murder that they did not commit. And when that case got over and, and we walked them out of jail, I, I can remember turning to the other members of the office and saying, well, that's it. Lightning doesn't strike twice. There's no way we're going to wind up with another file like this. So as I got these files in from the state of Connecticut and we would work them out, you know, you, you see a hundred of them and, and you get absolutely nowhere. You have a tendency to just get down and say, okay, let's march through the, let's march through the paces, but there's, there's no, no chance of success. And it's only when you keep digging and you keep digging. And, and luckily for me, we've been able to bring in young lawyers like Dan who can say, hey, Jay, let's, let's look at this a different way. Let's, let's attack this a different way. And, and we, can, we can use some – I can sort of you know, get myself jazzed up about a case bouncing off of their energy and their vibe. But, yeah, I mean, I, I will tell you, you know, when the case first came into the office – and we started looking at it, I just thought, well, they've already had the habeas. This, is, this isn't going anywhere. He lost on his appeal. And I think one of the things that was telling to me was when I was talking to Marquise about his case, at one point, he said he was sitting in the courtroom, listening to the closing arguments, knowing he wasn't involved in the case, and listening to the prosecutor give a closing argument and saying, wait a minute, this guy's got a good argument here. Was it, did I do something I didn't do? Because... You know, you can marshal facts to, to support your position if you're skilled, like, like the prosecutors in New Haven are. So, yeah, I mean, it's very easy to get down. But, man, you get that one little spark of, of something there, and that can ignite a fire in you. And, and that's certainly what happened in this case. So, Marquise, at what point did you start to think, man, there's a chance that, that I'm going to get out of here? At what point was that? Three weeks ago. So when you let me out. Me. When they <laughs> wow. let me out. That's when I know. No, not a day before, not a day after. Because for, for a person like me who, who, served 19, who served 19 years in prison, hope was, hope was something that was a hindrance. See, I had to create a life inside prison. You, you know, so thinking about, you know, what can happen there, what's, how about this, maybe this, I, that, that, that didn't help me. I needed to get focused on my new life, the life that I know more so than being free. I was, I was free for 19 years. I, I was incarcerated at 19. I've been in prison 19. But I know more about prison life than I know about society life at that time. So my life was prison. So hoping about maybe this, hoping about this judge decision, hoping about this attorney's coming up with some type of no, that, that what was real to me was those bars, chains, and the steel, and the brick walls, the guys, the, the connections that I made there, the job that I had. That was my life. That was real. Everything else was not real. That was a mirage that disappeared whenever a judge made another decision that went against me. That was, that, that was normal. That became normal now. Uh, but let's try this habeas. Didn't work. Got knocked. All right, whatever. I think I have Jim. I got to go to the gym today. Your lawyer want to talk to you. Uh, tell him I'll write him. That became a, that has not, wasn't real to me. What was real to me was the serving time. And I made a life with them for myself while serving time. That was what I did. That was important to me. At times I, I haven't spoken to my family for months on end. And I became, let's say, in a lack of a better term, institutionalized. But I was okay with that. Because it was something that I could control. It was something that I, I could predict. I knew what time it was going to go this. I knew what, what we was having for dinner. I knew what I would be doing at 630. I, I knew that became consistent with me. So when you asked me when did I believe that I was going to be free, the day when me and Dan walked out of there, I knew it. And then I wanted to get away from there as fast as I came before they changed their mind. 
So that's when I knew. And and today, I still don't know. You know, I'm still sitting around waking up at 530 and be like, oh, uh, is this real? Because this is something new to me. But I'm working through it, and every day is becoming more realer. But, you know, I never knew until that day when I walked out of the courtroom. So that's when I knew. That's, that, that is tragic and at the same time fantastic that you're out. It's tragic that you had to go through that, and I'm, I'm sorry you had to go through that. The, that's, but, that's okay, Tyson. But Tyson, I don't want, see, this is what I want to say, too. I don't consider myself a victim. I consider myself a survivor of a flawed system. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't play victim with that well. So, once again, I like to go to the responsibility of myself. What can I do to better my own situation? Put things in my own hand. So, I'm a survivor, not a victim. You know, so that's how I look at it. That's, 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 I just wanted to add that, Tice. That's all. Thank you. No, and, and I'm glad you did. I, it, it, it's a testament to, to the man you are, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I really appreciate that. You know, a lot of people in your situation were, were talking about what, what was their last meal. And uh, you, you had a couple of really excellent attorneys uh, get you out. What, what was your first meal whenever you got out? <laughs> uh, well, we went to a nice restaurant, I think the Goodfellas. And uh, I, I, it was all the days. I don't know. I ate, I ate something, but I think the family, the gathering is what I remember the most. You know, meals is good. Don't get me wrong. And, you know, some people say, oh, man, my first meal or my last meal, those are, those, those are symbolistic. The connections that I have with my family, sitting around that table, hearing these stories, meeting cousins that was 17 and 18 that I never met in my life. They never visited me, never wrote me. These people didn't exist when I was out in society. Meeting these people, meeting my cousin, this is what really mattered to me. This is what I really value. This is what this is what living was. And I'm sitting around the table, Jay's there, Dan's there, and I'm looking at these guys like, wow, you guys really did it. I'm sure we had, we, we definitely had help from the, the federal defender's office, absolutely. And uh, I have to give uh, my co-defendant, Vernon Horn, a lot of respect and admiration for allowing his attorney to share that information with my attorney. You know, with all said and done, it was a, it was a team effort. You know, it, 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 there should be more people on this call, you know, because nothing happens in a vacuum. A bunch of things had a lot of working parts had to come to fruition for me to be free now, for me to be on this phone speaking to you, for me to be with my mother, for me to be with my sister, my nephew, my cousins, a lot of things had to happen, just as, just as a lot of things had to happen to convict me for a crime that I didn't commit. A lot of actors and players had to step on that stand, step in that arena, and perjure themselves and lie, look at me in my face and lie to get this to happen. And a lot of people had to get on that stand, come up, and divulge information now to exonerate me. So, you know, it's, it's bigger than me. It's bigger than the mill. It's bigger than uh, Jay. It's bigger than Dan. It's bigger than all the others. It's a system. It's families. It's the victim. We can't meet the victim's family. We can't, uh, you know, forget about them. You know, uh, Dan earlier didn't uh, say the name of the guy that was, that was killed in the, in, the, in the store. I would like to say, I'd like to say to Caprice Hardy's family that I understand that you're going through some stuff, and, I, and, you know, I'm sorry to hear that. But unfortunately, the police officers, the, the system, the taxpayers that pay, pay your money for to protect you and get the right guy, they failed you. They failed me. The system failed them. So, you know, I'd like to, you know, uh, give my condolences to the family because when all said and done, somebody was really killed here. You know, and that's being lost in translation about everything that happened here. And unfortunately, those officers, those detectives that committed this fraudulent thing and got people convicted on crimes they didn't commit, there's no repercussions that's going to happen to them. Not that I see so far. And the sad part is, I don't believe I'm the only one. There are other individuals right now sitting probably on death row, probably not in Connecticut because they abolished that, but there are people sitting in prison Shadowed with hundreds of years for crimes they did not commit. Also, so you know, this is just this is just one showing that yes, you can be convicted of a crime that you didn't commit, 
but you gotta have you gotta have the tenacity. You gotta have people on your side that's willing to fight for you. If not, it's just another run in the mill. Exercise its utility. Okay, this that your, your case get dog eared on some lawyer overworked. You know, it's, the whole system is set up hopefully to, to to help people, but unfortunately, it's not helping people. But you know, I'm 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 encouraged now that there are people out there fighting, but I'm not the first. I'm not the last. There's going to be several more coming out of New Haven of individuals who are were proven to be innocent. Very well said. And I think I think you've got a honestly I think you've got a long career of speaking ahead of you. I think you're you you may not be on stage as a comedian. I don't know. That may still be a dream of yours. But I think you're going to be on stage somewhere because you 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 you're very passionate about this. Yeah, I, I, I do have a question. Like you're on something called a podcast, right? These didn't exist wherever you went in. I mean, there's the no. internet that has just exploded. Like, what what's the biggest surprise to you? Like, what is the biggest thing that's so different from whatever you went in? Like, what what surprises you the most? Oh man, everything's on your phone. I'm not like, what, what, what? Everything's on your phone. In fact, I went to DMV the other day to get my ID, and something happened. I, w- I wasn't able to get it. And I said, okay, can I sign up for my driver's permit? They said, yeah, you can sign up. You got to log on to our DMV website. Excuse me, ma'am. How you doing? My name is Marquis Jackson. I'm here. I'm speaking to you, flesh and blood. You know who I am. So you're telling me I can't sign up in person here? They said, no. Everything is done online. Now, I was a little upset with that. I'm saying, okay, it should be optional. You come in the DMV and you sign up, or you sign up on the, online. No, everything's online. So I really, really got to get reacclimated to things that's going on, but I'm encouraged by it. Technology is moving forward, and I like it. It's all new to me. You know, it's like every day I wake up and I do something different, it's like it's, like it's new. It's something good. So why not? You know, it's, it's a new world out here. And then one thing I have to fight against is trying to compare it to the world that I left. And that's, that's my only struggle. Not really with the new technology and things. I know I'll get it. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a quick study. So I'll get it. Like I'm learning how to use this iPhone that I'm speaking to you on right now. I'm learning how to use these things. And every day I'm getting, I'm, I'm progressing with it. But my, my really struggle is to not to compare to what I left 19 years ago. Because unfortunately, when I'm speaking to people, I speak about things that happened 20 years ago. It happened 20 years ago to them, but to me it was yesterday. So I'm still, I'm, I'm 39 years old, but I still feel 19. I still have my memories from 19. It's like I was put in a bubble and kept there, but I remember everything from 19. I still feel 19 years old, so when I speak to my, my friends, my family, I'm speaking about things that they forgot about. I'm speaking about houses and apartments that they used to live in that they forgot they lived in there. But they, you know, that's when I left, that's where you live. When I left, this is what you did. When I left, this is how you felt. So when I speak to them, they, they forget these things. And I'm just sad. So my, really, the transition is just trying to move forward, trying to get new memories, trying to, you know, get connections that were severed because of incarceration. So that's my real struggle as far as uh, what's going on in society now. But uh, Dan put it a good way when he said, uh, the Industrial Revolution, where they changed from, I think, 1900 to 1921 somewhere, it has, this is, there's no comparison from 1999 to 2018, the, the, the advances that society has made. So he's saying that that is the most technological advance in, in modern history, and I tend to agree with him. You know, Tyson, this is Jay here. One of the biggest challenges I think Marquise has been facing, and we've been trying to help him with it, is the change in society and obviously the change in technology. And, and one, of the, one of the unfortunate things that is happening now is the fact that he was exonerated. And, and you think about that in the context of, well, isn't that a good thing? Well, for most people who are discharging from a correctional facility, there's a lot of resources available to them. You know, they're usually put on parole or probation. They have people in the community that they'll report to that'll help them get a job, help them get a resume, help them find a place to live, help them get health care. But for Marquise, what they essentially did was unlock the door and say, good luck. 
So he doesn't qualify for a lot of the resources that a, that an, a former inmate would qualify for because he doesn't have the social network that they give to people who are discharging from prison. So he doesn't have access to those resources. Even just trying to get the state ID was uh, an exercise in, in weeks of going back and forth to the DMV and proving who he was and, and where he lived by mailing himself uh, some, some correspondence to prove that uh, he is who he says he is and he lives at a certain residence that's one of the reasons why the family set up the GoFundMe for him and obviously you know if anybody is is uh, willing to donate uh, I'm sure Marquise and, and his family would certainly uh, would love to uh, get some assistance because there just aren't resources for people who are exonerated he's sort of just left out to his own devices. And luckily, um, I've been able to help. Dan's been able to help. And we're trying to help him piece back his life. I know he wants to get into school and continue his education that he started while he was locked up. But all those things, you know, there's no infrastructure for a person who just basically is let go. And it's sort of sad that we could take so much away from a person for so long. And then when you let him out, you provide him with nothing. I mean, he couldn't even cash the check from his uh, commissary account at the jail uh, because he didn't have a bank account. He didn't have an ID. So this is only money in the world was held up because he had no way of, uh, of getting a bank to honor it. Um, so it's amazing what an attitude he has when things should have gone so much easier for him, even getting out. And yet it's still a struggle. So those are, the, you know, that's certainly something that uh, uh, we're trying to do to get him back on his feet is that GoFundMe. You read my mind because that's where I was heading next. Jay, what's the easiest way for people to get access to that GoFundMe account? I'm going to make sure we have a link in the show notes. But is there is there a landing page they can go to? What's the easiest way that they can donate money? Because I don't care if it's a dollar, five bucks, whatever it may be. We need to get Marquise back on his feet and allow him to live his dream. You know, we, we've had our opportunities to live our dreams. It's his turn. He's been locked up. He, he's not had a chance to do the things he's wanted to do. and He was wrongfully convicted. What's the easiest way we can get him some money? So the address, the URL for uh, the GoFundMe is GoFundMe.com backslash Marquise dash Jackson. Uh, it's just his name, M-A-R-Q-U-I-S dash Jackson. Um, and that'll get you uh, to the page where you can read the story and make some donations. We've had a bunch of people who've donated already, but uh, the more money we can get to get him on his feet, the better it's going to be for, uh, for, for Marquise and, and for us as a society to start repaying him for everything they need to do. I mean, imagine, you know, imagine, you know, at a, at a time of crisis in your family, when your father's passing away, you're locked up in chains and you're not allowed to, uh, to, to, to be with your family. And he was able to spend some time with his father. But when you spend some time uh, with your father, you couldn't, he couldn't be around his family. So he had to, he had to sort of grieve that uh, by himself alone in a jail cell when he hadn't done anything wrong. So that's what we're looking to do. We're looking to get his story out there. This is one of the mechanisms for doing it and tell his story to the world. The Marquise is very well-spoken. Uh, we just want to let people know that, uh, you know what, it, it's 2018 and, and there are innocent people who, are, uh, who need our help. Um, and so that's what we're looking to do. Jay, what's the goal? Do you, do you have a goal set for, for raising money for, for Marquise? I think right now the goal is set at $35,000. we are about $1,100 so far. We're trying to get him enough so that he can get a place to live. I mean, one of the things that's, you know, he's living with uh, his sister now. Up until this week, he was living on a couch. We were able to get some funds for a bed and, and get that taken care of as a donation from somebody. But in reality, you know, he needs to get a place of his own. He's he's lived with a cellmate for 20 years. He really has had no no personal privacy for two decades. So he needs to get a place of his own. He needs to get enrolled in, uh, in community college so that he could start having a, a system. And one of the things he talked about, obviously, was you know he, he still wakes up early in the morning because he was accustomed to that lifestyle. I think getting him into school and getting him back on the path to, uh, to being uh, fully employable, he's got no job history, uh, essentially. I mean, not a lot. You know, wh what do you put on a resume if you've been out of the workforce for 20 years? Um, you know, but, but having some ed recent education uh, can help uh, explain that uh, when he goes to apply for jobs. So all of those things are going to be necessary. Uh, that's why we're trying to get him around $35,000. Well said, well said. So here's what I want to do. I want to give uh, each of you the last word. Marquise is going to get the last word, but Jay, then Dan, then, then Marquise, what's your last word? My last word is that you never know where you can uh, find uh, a spark that can reignite your career as an attorney. 
Um, I certainly didn't expect the file of Marquise Jackson to be that, but it certainly has become that to me. Uh, and it has made me, you know, made me feel like I'm a, a 25-year-old lawyer, uh, fresh out of school, ready to fight the world. Uh, and I'm thankful for that because it's certainly given me a, a big energy boost. And I wouldn't be able to do this career for another 30 years if it wasn't for that. So um, that's my big takeaway is that, you know, the system uh, has its flaws, uh, but sometimes even if it takes a long time, you can get it right. You just got to keep plugging away. Tyson, the vast majority of convictions that are overturned in this country are done so because of newly found and discovered DNA evidence. And unfortunately, although those those convictions being overturned are, are a tremendous feat and a necessary outcome, there are thousands of other innocent individuals currently incarcerated who do not have the benefit of new DNA evidence because the crime in and of itself really didn't require DNA evidence as a central issue. And it's so hard for people in Marquise's position, well, Marquise's former position, to have their convictions looked at thoughtfully and carefully. It is one of the most difficult things to do in law to revisit a jury's verdict in the criminal courts. And I I just want to say that this case is a boon of optimism for those in the position that Jay and I are in. However, the system continues to make it incredibly difficult for people who have been convicted by false eyewitness testimony, by flawed cell phone evidence, by lies, by misused facts, and by jurors who do not appreciate their very important role in the criminal justice system. And I just wish that cases like Marquise's highlight how difficult it is and how the system should be overhauled. Well said. Marquise, you have the last word, bud. All right, thank you. First, I would like to thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my story. And uh, I'd like to say that, uh, you know, even when the, the darkest hours, it gets greater. And i just like to, you know, end it off with, to my fellow comrades, the convicts, the people that serve in time right now, if you are in prison right now and, you know, you don't think that anything is going to happen for you, you know, keep the hope alive, keep pushing, and uh, never give up, you know, because if you, if you fight forward, you know, sooner or later something's going to pop for you, man. You know, keep your head up, man. Ribbon in the sky. Keep your head high. That's what I got to say to my, my fellow comrades, my convicts. Because I have more in common with you than I have with anyone else. So keep hope alive, man. Keep fighting, man. You know what I mean? And and, uh, keep your spirit alive. Read your books. They can trap your body. Can't trap your mind. And, you know, I'm out here, man. I love y'all. That's what I got to say. Jay Ruane, Dan Lage, Marquise Jackson, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Tyson. Thanks, Tyson. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your hosts and to access more content, Go to MaximumLawyer.com Have a great week and catch you next time.